Hello, everyone. This is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I'm excited to welcome our 12th guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Michigan State University Professor Dr. Anne Marie Ryan. Before we begin today's conversation, I want to acknowledge that the majority of questions we'll be asking Anne Marie today were submitted by you, our listeners, in advance of this broadcast. Thank you for your contributions to this conversation. Additionally, I want to remind you that all episodes of the SIOP Conversation series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and are housed on the Conversation series landing page of SIOP.org. Now I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Anne Marie Ryan, a professor of organizational psychology at Michigan State University. Her major research interests involve improving the quality and fairness of employee selection methods and topics related to diversity and justice in the workplace. In addition to publishing extensively in these areas, she regularly consults with organizations on improving assessment processes. She is the past president of PSYOP, past editor of the Journal of Personnel Psychology, and former associate editor of American Psychologist. She's also the recipient of the Distinguished University Professor Award from MSU, PSYOP's Distinguished Teaching Contributions Award, and the Academy of Management's SAGE Award for Outstanding Scholarly Contributions to the Study of Diversity. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Likewise. Well, let's dive in. Our first question here is about finding your passion within IO psychology. How many how many frogs uh, did you have to kiss before you found what you were passionate about and good at when it came to IO psychology careers and areas? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think uh, for me, just picking psychology early on as an undergraduate, I thought about going into genetics. Um, I didn't really want to go into being in medicine. I wanted to do research, but then I was kind of discouraged because I, people would talk about like cleaning rat cages or something like that. And um, uh, so I gravitated towards psychology and I pretty quickly gravitated towards IO psychology. Um, so I did double major as an undergraduate in um, psychology and management and sort of debated which way I would go. So I think when it comes to psychology and finding out specifically what my passion is, I, 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 I'm pretty broad. Um, I like the applied nature of things and problems. Um, I think I come back to fairness and hiring issues um, and, and diversity-related issues uh, over and over again throughout my career. But I've, I've also looked at other things. I've looked at employee surveying or other topics where um, it's of interest. But I think you do kind of find that your passion is is what you find yourself um, being excited about coming back to again and again. It doesn't mean you might not uh, go off and, you know, still kiss frogs even after I've been at this for a while, but come back to the same things. And how, how early in your journey did you realize the academic path was the right one for you? Um, I think I, I, I was late compared to most people in graduate school. I actually was applied. I said, I am going to be applied. As an undergraduate, I heard about people in our field. I heard about Mary Tenniper and Ann Howard as uh, people who did exciting work in organizations. And I wanted to, that was my model. That's what I wanted to be. And it wasn't until uh, just before my last year in graduate school where my advisor said, you know, you should think about academia. Um, you're, you know, you, you do well at this. Um, and 
the way he put it is the door really swings one way. Um, so if you don't go into an academic career early on, it's harder to get into an academic career later. Whereas um, if you start as an academic and two or three years in, you say, this is just not for me, um, other opportunities may open themselves up for you. So, um, or at least it was that way at that point in time. So that's kind of the way I went. All right. Um, and it sounds like you have the best of both worlds today with uh, um, the consulting work that yeah. you do and the research and academic work you do as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I still strive really very much to be the scientist practitioner, to always make sure that I am talking to people in organizations, if not trying to do projects, there's not a ton of time to do uh, large scale consulting work in my current role, but um, I do try to keep a hand in uh, what's going on um, and talking to people in organizations and dealing with the issues that uh, practitioners in our field are facing so that can inform what I'm doing. That's wonderful. Something we all can aspire to regardless of, of our paths and I.O. Um, many of our listeners submitted questions for you, Anne-Marie, about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, looking back at the beginning of your career, is your definition of diversity and inclusion different now than when you first started? Um, yes, I, I would even say that probably when I started, people didn't even really talk about um, diversity and inclusion, um, definitely not inclusion. It was more representation and so the focus in my early research and it's probably in my early writings if I go back to them were really specifically on um, things like adverse impact and getting people into organizations and it really did not focus on all the issues surrounding um, inclusion and feelings of inclusion so I think that's definitely a difference not only in my own perspective um, but in our field's perspective and, in fact, in the perspective organizations have taken um, to the topic of recognizing that um, yeah, representation is, is not enough. Inclusion is also uh, critically important um, for, for organizational success. And how do you talk about inclusion with respect to diversity when you're talking to people in the business world? Yeah, I think most people in the, the business world will, you know, um, agree this is an important issue. When I talk to uh, people like uh, HR leaders, they will bring up the topic of um, representation in higher ranks and how do we get there and how do we get everyone on board and, um, you know, how do we um, uh, make sure that all our people feel that they are um, engaged at work, they are included at work. And so it's, I think it's not hard to make the case for looking at, 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 at this. The question is how to do it and how to achieve goals. Um, and that can, that can be difficult. And many people will tell you that one of the tougher issues is um, organizations who feel like they're doing everything right. They're kind of looking for what should I be doing? What, what should I be caring about to get people into like leadership positions in an organization, they will look at their numbers and say, you know, it doesn't, the outcomes are slow. Um, and there's sort of a pressure for, for IO people, people in HR to um, achieve outcomes quicker um, in terms of representation. Uh, that isn't happening. Um, and there's also disappointment um, when uh, programs, efforts, um, 
like training efforts uh, don't really seem to um, create the kind of climate or atmosphere um, that organizational leaders are hoping to achieve. So we still have a lot to do in terms of uh, how can we create change around some of these issues. Mm. Sounds like uh, sounds like important work. We'll be uh, eager to see how that unfolds. Our next mm -hmm. question on a similar topic was submitted by Yang Yi L, who would like to know how can we, as IO psychologists, pitch the importance of diversity and inclusion to our communities and to our local organizations. It's a great question. Um, uh, thanks for for asking it. Um, you know, it's easy to say, oh, speak up, continue to speak up, continue to bring up issues. Uh, but really, even in my own research, uh, we look at things like when does one really want to confront um, bias? When does one want to use a different tactic for dealing with a coworker, customer, um, who perhaps is ex exhibiting a lack of inclusion, um, how, to, how to understand how to deal with that. So I think for all of us, um, we wanna keep making um, uh, these issues, uh, uh, bringing awareness to them, heightening awareness of them. Uh, but I also think we have to think about when is the time to really push hard on something? Uh, when is the time to use a tactic of, um, speaking to people privately about um, a behavior that you might see as uh, lacking inclusion, and also framing things. For example, um, if you feel that a, a, a particular process or procedure, um, you look at the, the outcomes and you say, this is not inclusive, this is not uh, uh, leading to diversity in my organization, um, starting from the point of getting people to look at what criteria they're using in the process, why did they design it this way, and then moving to the fact that the, the process itself um, may have biases in it is a better approach sometimes than just coming straight out and saying, this must be biased, this must be wrong, um, because people will, will be defensive. Um, and that could be for organizational processes, but even in um, individual situations. Mm, okay, thank you. And um, another question here, what practical advice can you give to organizations that simultaneously have the goal of increasing racial or ethnic diversity and improving predicted job performance through pre-hire assessments that have tapped the G construct? Yes, this, this question is a long-term focus of our field. It was a question when I got into the field of 30, something years ago, um, it's a question still. Um, and I think uh, one of the challenges is people often are looking for sort of the magic bullet, the ideal you know, situation that's gonna resolve something that, you know, quite honestly, we have to take um, into account that we're working in a social context. Um, if there are, for example, disparities in um, education, when people are entering the workforce, um, those disparities uh, and the effects of those disparities are coming with them. Um, so, um, and, and that contributes to the differences that we, we find in um, measures of G. However, I would also say that um, you can't take the approach of saying, well, um, this is how it is and uh, we can't do anything about it. Um, there's a lot of research that shows um, things that you can do to reduce um, uh, the gaps you might find, not 
by large amounts, not uh, dramatically, but if you think about 20 or 30 little things you could do, um, those little things will add up. Um, one example I could give is people thinking more now about um, just the uh, nature of the predictors we use and the order we use them in. Um, so traditionally measures of G uh, could be administered on a large scale and reduce an applicant pool. Uh, we have many other options with technology of what we might do to reduce our pool sooner um, that may not um, lead to uh, a less diverse pool at the last stages of the process. So that's one way our field um, has evolved. That doesn't mean that there are not group differences on many measures of G. It means that overall we're thinking about our processes differently and in ways where perhaps um, we can increase diversity. One of the things I would wonder about that, and this is a topic that has come up in prior conversations with some mm -hmm. of the other guests we've had on the series, is to what extent will the rise of automation around uh, more cognitive tasks contributing to job performance criteria, how might that mm -hmm. impact some of this if we start to see more emphasis on mm -hmm emotional and social um, aspects of performance. Do you see yeah. that being implications? Um, yeah, and I think there's uh, there's sort of two trends and we can't tell what, you know, you can't read the future. I don't have the crystal ball. So there's the, the trend towards saying we're going to automate tasks and so that the role people will have will require more of the interaction, collaboration, um, those kinds of skills. On the other hand, uh, you could look at forecasts that talk about what jobs are left in terms of um, abilities and, and skills and, you know, requiring um, higher level knowledge, for example, um, would be um, jobs that are not automated. Um, so it, 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 a lot of the discussion is around middle skill level jobs, perhaps being more amenable to, to automation. So it's interesting to say that at the same time, there will be jobs that require higher cognitive ability levels. Um, there also will be jobs that require more of the uh, collaborative people skills, the um, emotional um, intelligence, if you will. So I, I see both as potentially happening. Hmm. Interesting. Um, thank you. The, the next question we have here is from Sean M. And Sean would like to know, when using merit-based raises, what would you recommend to find and prevent bias that could create pay disparities based on race, gender, or other affiliations? Um, yeah, this is a, a great question, too. Um, uh, obviously, a lot of organizations are very concerned about this, taking a more careful look at um, their pay systems and um, trying to uh, uh, ensure pay equity. I think the challenge is, um, looking carefully at, um, uh, you know, as the questioner says, you know, what goes into determining pay and in particular what goes into determining merit um, and looking carefully at how is that derived, not just um, uh, is there a difference in sort of the, you know, performance ratings, but how did you, how was the decision made about what criteria go into those performance ratings or what the inputs are, how things are weighted. Um, I, I think the challenge for many organizations is um, uh, 
trying to assess why they might have um, pay differences and uh, trying to determine, you know, where along the way things happened. And you can talk to people in organizations and um, they will they will say, you know, we can we can point to a, a salary difference. How do we account for that difference? Um, is that difference based on factors that we see as important things to compensate? Um, and then can we defend those factors? So it's, it's a multi-step process. Um, so it's a, a, a difficult one, but I think one that a lot of organizations are really focused on right now. Well, and I, I think it's interesting, you alluded earlier to the natural defensiveness that can sometimes come up when you're talking about things like diversity um, around pay and promotion decisions, bias, things like that. Do you have any other tips or suggestions for people in IO who may be talking with people who are in a position to be making some of these decisions when you're presenting them with data that, that may reflect that there's um, you know, potential bias in their decision making or inequity in the way that they're making decisions around some of these really important um, criteria. Yeah, I think you know, you 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 just use the word potential bias as opposed to saying bias. I think there is a tendency. I, I do see this particularly, um, you know, uh, with 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 students where you feel you know, sort of this, hey, this is wrong. Uh, we got to point it out. We got to fix it. Um, I think it's important to recognize that. If, if you don't know why something is there, um, uh, by, by putting it on, um, you know, people as you are biased, uh, you've kind of created that defensiveness coming in. So um, talking about it and saying, there's a difference here. Um, we need to be able to look at this difference and see what contributes to it. If we have good, justifiable reasons for what led to a difference, um, I, I, you know, what those could be, could be experience differences or something like that and pay, uh, leading to pay differences, um, then, then it's fine, but we always need to know. And I think you'll get people on board if you don't start off by saying it must be biased or you are biased or the system is biased, uh, rather saying we need to find out uh, what what are the sources of this difference and whether those are are, are things that we feel are appropriate and right um, or not. And then you can get people to say, no, I, I don't want that. Um, I can't explain this. It's got to be a problem. So sharing the sharing the the data or the findings and then approaching others with those from more mm -hmm. of a collaborative curiosity and discovery approach? Yeah, to the extent you can. Now, I mean, I know uh, you, there's probably practitioners out there who will say to me, that's not that easy. You know, um, people are going to just move on to the next thing. And I, I recognize that. Um, uh, we, we have to keep working at these things. And um, sometimes presenting the data um, is compelling to us and may not always be compelling to all of our audiences. Um, but we got to keep opening and working on ways we present that data so that um, it does strike people as important and um, to look at. Absolutely. And Anne-Marie, on that topic, what's next for diversity research? Uh, you know, this is a big, broad question. I think one of the things I, 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 I guess I alluded to this a little bit earlier um, is I, I sense a lot of uh, frustration among people about you know, how, how do you create change um, and how do you create change faster um, and are more widespread. And I, I think um, 
organizations will say, yeah, uh, you know, we have implicit bias training, but um, we're doing this. We have mentoring programs. We have um, uh, employee resource groups. We're, we're trying all different kinds of things, yet we're not seeing movement. And I think we're not really getting to the level of evaluating intervention effectiveness um, at, a, at a very specific level. So we do have some meta-analyses, for example, on diversity training, but the kinds of variables we're still talking about is, you know, how long is the training or, um, you know, uh, does it include a uh, uh, things, uh, a, a few items, does it evaluate uh, knowledge or attitudes or behavior? We haven't really dug in deeper um, and had, I guess, you know, theoretically informed interventions that we are then doing thorough evaluations of. And I think that's really necessary um, to really help um, create change. All right, thank you. Um... So let's shift to another topic and talk about employment decisions. We've touched on this to some extent through some of our earlier questions, but um, organizations that are embracing advanced analytics, things like machine learning and AI, uh, often move fast and break things um, like employment laws, for example, unwittingly making employment decisions based on protected class status. What role should IOs play in helping organizations embrace these tools without unwittingly breaking employment law? Yeah, I think I think this is a, a great question, a very timely question. Um, I think uh, it is about being involved in the conversations um, because uh, people who um, are making decisions about technology um, may come from very disciplinary, different disciplinary backgrounds, may not have the awareness IO psychologists have about factors that influence, um, say, for example, hiring processes and not just the legal side of it, but just even what um, uh, affects validity um, in, in our world, in our terminology. So I think um, it's important for us to to be engaged with educating um, and trying to speak to audiences other than our own. Um, universities are often talking about being more interdisciplinary. Um, it's very important uh, that IO psychologists team up with people in organizations and um, outside of organizations too, to try to um, uh, work together on how um, advanced analytics, um, uh, new technologies are being deployed um, so that they're done in ways that um, a lot of it is driven by efficiency. We could do this faster, cheaper. I think we also have to focus on effectiveness and remind people of what, what does it mean to be effective. And um, in selection terms, we often talk about validation, but in any context when you're using analytics, what does effectiveness look like and focusing on that a bit more. All right. Thank you. And another question here on selection. What are the most pressing issues facing selection research for the, the foreseeable future? Um, yeah, I, I think they're related to the topic we were just talking about. Um, I think when I look at uh, uh, what's happened with technology and selection um, and rapid change that's occurred, we still are not really doing a lot to deploy technology to assess new constructs. I, a, a lot of it has led to efficiencies in how we assess things that we're comfortable with. And I think that's fine because if we 
know something is predictive of performance. Uh, that should be where we're focusing. But there's so much promise uh, of looking um, at other things at, uh, 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 as you mentioned before, like collaborative skills or um, uh, ability to handle stress or other kinds of things that in the past may have been very difficult to assess using the tools we had in hand. And I really think selection research has to be focused on um, ways to um, assess some of these constructs that uh, we believe are job relevant or we know are um, related to job performance, but we seldom have looked at in selection context outside of maybe an interview question. Um, I think we could do a lot more. Are there any barriers, real or perceived, that you feel has kind of kept us from making the kind of progress in those areas um, that it sounds like we have the opportunity to in the future? Yeah, I mean, part of it is, once again, skill set and recognizing, um, uh, you know, the people who study uh, team science talk about you you need uh, distributed expertise. And we have to be aware that as the lone IO psychologist um, trying to um, uh, pursue something that requires um, advanced um, skills in, in um, you know, design and implementation of varied technologies and continually moving technologies, we really need to partner up with other people and their expertise um, to bring these these things to um, fruition. And we're not doing that enough. I, I will say there are many people in our field who are. I shouldn't be um, too negative on that. But I, I think we need to be training students that that is the way um, uh, to proceed in the future in the selection area. Thank you. Um, so shifting to yet another topic here, Catherine C. asks, in this time of VUCA, how do you think executive coaches and or IO consultants can best be of value to corporations? Um, I think this is a great question as well. Um, I think getting people uh, to, helping people to develop, you know, skill and also efficacy in dealing with uncertainty um, is something we should be focusing on and thinking about. I think um, there are, in, in times of change, you have things like people becoming, um, you know, uh, cynical about change, or you have people talking about innovation fatigue, like we just went through this big change last year, and now we have another big change. Um, as leaders, um, how do we help people address those kinds of things that are happening in their workforce. Um, and it's not just um, saying, you know, helping individuals cope better themselves with their stress, but it's really building that capacity. Uh, people are studying things like organizational resilience um, to look at these kinds of issues. Um, I think that's important. I also think that we forget um, about the role of what I would say is, you know, informational justice. Um, explaining to people and explaining and explaining again over communicating why are we doing this what does this mean um and when you can't you you don't know what it means uh being able to to also um say that so i think uh helping leaders um think about um information sharing informational justice in the perspective of employees um is important particularly important in in times of uncertainty hmm. Yeah, and, and what you um, just talked about alluded a little bit to the opportunity of helping people and uh, systems reframe the stressor instead of just dealing with the stress response, which 
uh, I imagine will probably have so much of an impact um, yeah. for, for yeah. organizations and people moving forward. Yeah, I definitely think so. Well, um, Anne-Marie, so in your in your role, I am sure that you are um, frequently sought after by students who are seeking advice on their education path and their career path. So I um, would love to know, what is your favorite piece of advice to offer students who are seeking directional clarity regarding their education and career path? Yeah, I don't know if I have one favorite piece of advice, but I think um, you do need to try different things out. I, uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, I had planned to go um, up into an applied career um, when I started grad school and through mostly through graduate school. Um, and it was like, well, you need to try um, uh, what what the role of an academic would be in order to see if it fits and it, it fit me very well. Um, so I, I think um uh, being um, proactive about seeking out opportunities, uh, being proactive about seeking feedback, um, and also, you know, critically evaluating that feedback and thinking about um, if you don't like the feedback, how might you change the feedback you're getting? Um, I think uh, that can be be helpful for people when they're trying to decide um, what what do I do best or what career path is going to fit me. You need you need you need the feedback to know um, the fit on the sort of uh, um, you know do your role do your skills abilities personality fit that role um, as well as your internal assessment of do your interests um, and values um, fit that role. Great, all right, lots of testing and learning. <laughs> it's a good, good way to put into practice what we what we uh, what we do for a living. <laughs> yeah, class. yeah. I often think about um, it's actually um, Stu Friedman at um, Wharton's um, has talked about you know do many experiments, and I, I don't know that they're necessarily experiments, but I think you know having people try something out for. Um, without making a commitment, I think people get worried about if I do this, then I'm on this path and I don't, I, I won't be able to get back. Um, you know, take a mini step where you can retreat. Um, I think that's more helpful. All right. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. These conversations always seem to go by so quickly. Um, on behalf of SIOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, thank you so much for sharing your time and insights with us today. Personally, I thoroughly enjoyed visiting with you and found your perspective to be immensely valuable. Listeners, thank you for joining today's discussion. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation series live event on July 31st at 11.30 a.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Central, where we'll be talking with another PSYOP fellow, Nancy Tippins, who is a principal at the Nancy T. Tippins Group, where she brings almost 40 years of experience as an internal and external practitioner and researcher. In later conversations, we will also have the opportunity to visit with Paul Sackett of the University of Minnesota, John Boudreau at the Center for Effective Organizations, Alexis Fink of Facebook, and Wayne Cassio of the University of Colorado, Denver. Until next time, take care. Thanks.